Hello, and welcome to another episode of Are You Fucking Shitting Me? I'm Rachel. And I'm April. And this week, we've got a pretty special treat. You may remember a few episodes back, we talked to a marine biologist. My brother. That's right, Lonnie. And at the time, I was like, oh, I have a friend who's a marine biologist, and she ended up studying Bigfoot. (laughs) Turns out I was wrong. She's not a marine biologist. She's actually a field biologist, um, specifically a restoration ecologist. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And she, when I met her years and years ago in Seattle, she was working for NOAA. Are you familiar with NOAA? Uh, I am familiar with NOAA just because of my brother, but I can't remember what it stands for. It stands for National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Okay. And she was doing some um, work around the Pacific Northwest. Anyways... Her name is Renee, and she is on the TV show Finding Bigfoot. So how did that happen? Right? (laughs) It's strange. (laughs) Why would a scientist go out looking for a mythological creature, or what many people believe is a mythological creature? Do you believe in Bigfoot? I do not, but I did spend a lot of years growing up watching uh, In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy, and I absolutely loved stories about Bigfoot. So you get the appeal. I totally get the appeal. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in the Northwest and Bigfoot, otherwise known as a Sasquatch, is... Yeah. See, now my whole idea of the myth of Bigfoot and Sasquatch, I think of Jack Black. What? Why? (laughs) Because Tenacious D has an awesome sketch about going and looking for this Sasquatch who's really sad and just wants to connect with people. Oh my God. I've never seen that. At least that's what I remember of it. So yeah, there's a whole song about Sasquatch. I totally need to see that. Yeah. I mean, in Seattle, there used to be a basketball team and the mascot was uh, the Sasquatch. Yeah. See, I just think of him now as like a sad Sasquatch. Oh, like Harry and the Hendersons just wanting love. Yeah. Yeah. Just (laughs) like that. Well, let's um, talk to Renee and find out how she went from really working and trying to restore our rivers to looking for the elusive Bigfoot. Uh, My name is Renee Holland. I am the skeptical scientist. My background is uh, restoration ecology. I I graduated from the University of Washington School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences. Essentially, people think I'm a fish biologist, or sometimes they think NOAA, so they might think I'm a marine biologist, but actually my passion is saving rivers. So my speciality, my my niche, if you will, is riparian corridors. So that means I love rivers, I want to protect rivers, and that means every aspect of a river. So that could be the water, the rocks, the forest that surrounds the rivers, or the grasses that surround the rivers and that's every animal that's in it from the big old brown bear down to the river otters to the birds even to the uh, insects the invertebrates that are in that system so i'm a i'm a river lover i'm a river hugger if you will i grew up in south dakota along the banks of the big sioux river and i also spent a lot of time at my grandmother's house and out her backyard is a back channel of the missouri so growing up as a kid i I was one of those ones that you couldn't keep clean, my sister used to say. And I wasn't tan, I was just dirty. And I loved the outdoors, and I loved animals, and I was curious, and learning whatever I could get my hands into. More importantly, why these little critters did what they did, or how things worked, fascinated me. Um, 
I've always been a very curious child. A little off topic, it makes me think back to a Christmas gift, maybe about five or six years old. <laughs> my, my parents bought me that little doll that you would feed. And uh, this is like circa 1970s. I'm aging myself. You'd feed the baby and then, you know, you put diapers on it and then it, it would go through its system <laughs> like a real baby. And I think it lasted maybe a day and a half. And then I was upstairs <laughs> at my grandma's house. We'd, we'd spent Christmas together and I got myself a pair of scissors and started dissecting it because I wanted to know how it worked. And I just remember the look on my mom's face. She came upstairs like, what are you doing? And just, you know, it was a Quincy moment. I'm like, the baby didn't die. I was like, but this isn't a real baby. How does this work? So I took it apart. I just remember that look on her face, like realizing, oh, you don't want to mother this thing. You just want to understand it better. That gives you a little insight to my very, very young mind. I mean, I remember being four years old and finding young birds or dead birds and understanding like uh, how their life cycle works. You know, South Dakota, hunting and tourism is huge to that state. So my hunting friends would bring you their deer back or ducks or geese. And I didn't necessarily want to kill the animal. I respect hunting. I understand it's part of the life cycle, but I always wanted to help clean the carcasses. (laughs) So that curiosity was there from a very young age. And then as I was allowed to play outdoors, that river environment um, was there at two very important locations for me. And rivers just became this huge part of me. And it's something I keep returning to, you know, um, no matter where I go, whether it's my work, whether it's my travels, I find myself happiest around dynamic river. If I've been traveling with a show or even on, in my own time, I like to find headwaters of rivers in an alpine type environment and fall off the beaten path and learn about a river. It's something that speaks to my soul. I think the rocks and the power of that water, glaciers melting, coming down, carving the earth, the soil poets, amazing songwriters speak to it. Some of my favorite authors, you know, Ralph Waldo, Emerson, John Muir, they write about the power of the rivers, how the rivers speak to you and sing to you, and the power of water. I mean, it's where I go to find my solace. So how did you get from um, NOAA and restoration ecology to finding Bigfoot? Well, that is a very, are you fucking shitting me, moment. And I've thought about this often over the last several years because it's, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's it's profound, but then also I think back to it, there's a little bit of a sweetness to it that is very personal that I embrace. But if I can back up for a moment, I think back to a quote of one of my personal heroes, Carl Sagan, where he said, I am going to paraphrase this, every kid starts out a natural born scientist, then we beat it out of them. A few trickle through the system with their wonder and enthusiasm intact. Kids have this innate sense of curiosity. And I'd like to think that I never let that go. And In the 70s, there was a little bit of that Bigfoot boom. I distinctly remember that moment of my dad and I seeing the Patterson-Gimlin film and my father turning to me. And instead of choosing a path of telling me what it is, he took the opportunity to enrich my young, developing mind and asked me what I thought and created a dialogue. And I love it when parents do this for their kids. And that is something we developed and set a course for me. And that became our special time, anything Bigfoot. For that matter, anything paranormal, because it was about curiosity of something potentially undiscovered or, okay, if it's not real, how did they fake it? Or what could it be? Could it be a misunderstanding? Is it psychosomatic? You know, what is it? Because remember, I, I grew up in South Dakota, so my landscape, the geomorphology there is essentially a little house on the prairie. So reading Bigfoot stories as a little girl, I had to use my creative mind to visualize these vast wild forests and mountains. I had to imagine it. Of course, 
you know, mind you, any good Bigfooter would tell you that there's Bigfoot reports in South Dakota and Iowa. But young Rene had, you know, visualized these epic wild lands. And that to me would be, you know, the Pacific Northwest. I left South Dakota, moved out to Washington State, and Bigfoot kind of fell away. I mean, it was a a sweet memory of my father and something you'd think about, you know, in the woods and those what-if moments. But uh, Bigfoot was very much relegated to pop culture and sweet childhood memories. It wasn't until um, my father had passed away, and I wanted Bigfoot stories. So it, it was at that point that I contacted the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, BFRO, which was led by Matt Moneymaker, and we developed a wink-wink online relationship where I was given access to the report, and he was allowed to say that he knew a government scientist. I uh, couldn't say my name, couldn't say Noah, but I could give him data on where the fish were, where the elk herds were in real time. If, if he was doing an expedition, and I would say, oh, yes, uh, this location, he would use that for his expedition. So that went on and off for, I don't know, maybe six or seven years. But around about 2010, my, my contract at NOAA was ending. I was heading off to school. I was going to be going to Oregon State University. And while on that break, I was approached by Discovery Communications. Matt Moneymaker, the production company, and those had, had pitched me as being that final person. It's my understanding they wanted somebody with field credentials, an actual quote-unquote scientist. I think they wanted a, a woman. I don't know if they wanted a skeptic. So I was incredibly resistant to this. I remember Matt had contacted me. On the phone surreptitiously with the production company and the president of casting and talent from Discovery Communications. But I think I'm just getting a phone call from Matt. So he's, hey, you know, why don't you do this? And this would be a trip to Alaska. And I remember saying, Matt, the part do not blank and understand. I don't want to be on TV. And then there's this pause, and then, hello, Renee, this is Todd from Discovery Communications. I just remember thinking, Matt, in true form, surreptitiously doing this. Like, Thanks, Matt. And I said, well, I'm a young scientist early in my career. I, I don't want to be associated with a, a TV show about Bigfoot, and with all due respect. And, and a very smart man, uh, my friend Todd Miller, he said, I tell you what, Renee, think about it for a week. Talk to your mentors at University of Washington and at NOAA think about it, call me back. So I'm like, okay, sure. All right, mister, I'll, I'll show you. So I do. I go back to all my all my friends and colleagues, and every one of them are like, do it, Renee. You are niched in your field. Everybody knows it's about your dad. You love a Bigfoot story. You don't believe in Bigfoot. Don't worry about it. It's not going to affect you. What I remember most about that moment, Rachel, is that the only reason I love a Bigfoot story is that it makes me feel like that little five-year-old girl pulled up in front of the TV in my dad's lap, wondering if that could be real. When it was decided where we were going to film this television pilot, it was April of 2010. We were going to go to Prince of Wales Island, Alaska. And when they said Prince of Wales Island, Alaska, that chills. And it was, are you fucking shitting me? Moment for me. But very bittersweet because, if I can back up, when my father passed away in the summer of 2003, I picked up the phone. I hadn't been in the field because my father was, was dying. And, and when he passed, we went to the memorial. I picked up the phone and I, I called my, my people and I said, get me in the woods. Get me in the backcountry. And I got on to a backcountry field crew to a part of Alaska I'd never been to before, which was outside of Prince of Wales Island, Alaska. And that's where I grieved my father's death. And I had some very personal and spiritual experiences there. Flash forward nearly seven years later, when they tell me we are going to film the pilot, anywhere in the country we could do this, anywhere in the world for that matter, but 
They choose Prince of Wales Island, Alaska. So it was bittersweet because if it were not for my father, always pulling me out of bed or when I come home from school, pulling out a newspaper clipping or watching some show together, I would not be this Bigfoot fan. Uh, it just to this day so kind of blows my mind. But it's even more than that, though, Rachel. Um, and I'm a little hesitant to talk in detail about this because it's very private and very personal, very special to me. When I was in Prince of Wales Island, in 2003, I had the honor of making some relationships with uh, Haida and Clinkett members. I spoke of my father's passing to nobody. I didn't know this field crew until we all got the job together. We're still friends today, but didn't know these Haida and Clinkett members, and nobody knew about my father passing. I go back seven years later, and I was invited. After we had wrapped and everybody was celebrating, I went off with some of these Haida members and was invited to a private little ceremony and there was an elder there who spoke to me and without going into too much detail I just recall him talking about me coming there before and being with such a heavy heart and that I would always be welcome here because last time when you were here your heart was so heavy and I'm paraphrasing slightly here but know that you will always find peace here because he was with you then he's with you here now you can always be here with your father blew my mind I'd never said a word about my dad never said a word about his death, and this tribal elder seemed to know. So it's a very spiritual place for me. And Bigfoot, therefore, is a very kind of spiritual connection I must have to my dad. Um, the show picks up. It's this hit pilot. We film these episodes, and it was this grind that I, A, was never prepared for. B, it wasn't what I was told. There's Respectfully, there's no science in our show. We don't <laughs> take measurements. It's, it's frustrating. In fact, uh, Cliff Berrickman the quote-unquote evidence analyst on our show, it sometimes very much takes offense to that statement that I make. And I remember one time, you know, being so frustrated with me, and I turned to him and I said, Cliff, there isn't any science in our show. We do not take survey equipment for these relocations and take measurements. We, we don't. So to say that, that this is scientific is, is not accurate. You know, as a scientist, that is fact. I said, now, with all due respect, there are people within the Bigfoot community who are scientists or who are attempting to take the quote-unquote scientific method and, and apply science you know, to the phenomena, and I applaud that. But it, it was very difficult for me as to be brought on and led to believe that I would be analyzing stuff when we just don't. So I routinely speak to colleges, universities, but I love also speaking to schools, private groups. It's one thing that keeps me going and raises my heart. I say to these young kids, you guys have this fantastic opportunity of being in the age of information. It's amazing. You can look anything up. And with this double-edged sword, you have to vet the sources. You have access to all this information, but so much of it is misinformation. But what I think of in regards to the scientific community or Bigfoot, that matter, is one thing that just blows my mind is how something will happen in the Bigfoot community, but people will believe it. Investigate. Vet the source. Before the show started, there was a veterinarian out of, I believe she was out of Texas, with a group. They have claimed to collect samples of DNA from purported Bigfoots across the country. Remember Bobo, Cliff, and Matt? Bobo and Cliff especially. I remember Cliff saying he wants to soften the blow for the day of discovery for Bigfoot. And he, he's serious. He's, the, all three of those guys believe it's a flesh and blood animal. Bobo, I think, is leaning towards more maybe it's something spiritual or alien or something. But, I mean, Cliff and Matt are definitely, it's a flesh and blood animal. 
anything outside of that, they roll their eyes. And I remember them talking about it was going to be a peer-reviewed scientific study. And I was like, really? I have friends that are at the University of Washington who are world-class geneticists. I'm going to ask them a few things. Tell me more about it. And they didn't really know anything. They go, oh, yeah, well, it's a Harvard study. And these people are I'm like, really? Well, who's doing the blind review? Who's replicating it? What lab? There was like, again, no answers. Just, oh, well, this one person's doing it. And I said, well, guys, that's a little suspect. If one person is doing it, that's not scientific. So as time goes on, I remember saying to him, you might want to be careful attaching yourself to that in interviews. Because sure enough, as, as time goes on, no scientific organization would touch that quote-unquote study. I would be asked about it. Well, what do you think about this? And, and I would say, look, it would be irresponsible as a scientist to comment on a study. I don't have any access to the data. But if it is a true peer-reviewed scientific study, it'll stand the test of time, and I'm very interested to see the results. And that would be my speed key answer, and that would be my default answer, because that's, that's what you're supposed to do. Many months later, these individuals, um, nobody will publish it, because they're not sharing it. They're they're saying, here, we got this answer, and it's it's part human, it's part alien. So Bigfoot is, this is what their DNA was saying. Of course, they weren't letting anybody do a, a, a blind replicate or repeating it. So there's no science in it. So they self-publish. They went and bought a journal and surreptitiously self-publish and then charge people. You know, people within the Bigfoot community who believe this is a real animal finally thought, oh, here we have some scientific proofs of DNA. And it was just this carrot dangling. But again, people to this day are still, hey, what do you think about that project? What do you think about the Ketchum project? I'm like, again, folks, vet your sources. Think for yourself. Don't be a lemming. I want people to understand two things about me if they're going to think of me in relation to finding Bigfoot. Number one, I'm the skeptical scientist. I'm not a cynic. I'm a skeptic. I think of a belief system as being one extreme, all-out cynicism, pre predisposed opinion, negative Nelly, and then the far other side being blind zealotry. In the middle is skepticism where you are choosing to step back, think independently and critically for yourself to form your own opinion. That's what I strive for. And the other thing, as far as Bigfoot is, is that it's all about the curiosity. I'm driven by what are people experiencing? You know, Bigfoot's a culture in of itself with all these little subcultures. It's a man, it's an ape, it's a shapeshifter, it's a demon, it's a guy in a suit, an alien. Who am I to say? You've talked about the town halls and how much you like talking to kids about scientific method. One of the things that I love about you is you have such capacity for magic and the curiosity that you have, the openness to what is amazing in our world. And as a scientist, part of that is then deconstructing what makes it magic. But it doesn't seem to dissipate the initial magic you feel in your curiosity. Do you feel like you've been able to encourage children as you go out to these town halls and stuff to still hold on to the magic and find that the reason behind things are just as magical? Well, absolutely. And it is honestly one of the few things that keeps me going. You know, the show, having some very strong personalities, you know, coming from an environment where it's academia, it's scientific, it's shared information where you bounce ideas off of each other. That's how you work to this TV reality experience, which was uh, a shock to the system, to say the least. So I, I very distinctly remember those first couple seasons and being at times often kind of miserable, especially when it's in the heavy grind of when we were doing production early on. It's like nine days, seven days of filming, a day off, a travel day. And you're talking night investigations, hiking, backwoods, moving, go, go, go. And then there would be our day of town hall. And the reason I love town hall, 
two of my favorite things, Bigfoot stories, whether they are real or not. Um, but then secondly, it's that, it's, it's that opportunity to meet all those kids. And it takes me back to, I believe it was uh, season two, we were in Virginia, and this was early on. And it was at that time where I was having a hard time. This wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Like I said, it wasn't scientific. Um, it's emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally kind of grueling, um, especially when you have a couple of our castmates who want to tell you how to think. Instead of it being an exchange, it's you're with us or you're against us. And it's sometimes a polarizing delivery, which can be difficult. So I remember being in the state of having a hard time. And um, our friend Cody Votolato told me something around about then because I came home on one of those breaks and I was worn out. I mean, when you're on the road nine and a half months of the year, literally for years on end, <laughs> it was it was rough. And um, I remember Cody turning to me saying, "You have to find something that you believe, or you're gonna you're gonna lose it. You've got to find something that lifts you up." And what that is is every time I could talk to the kids. He was so right. So it was at that point, I, I remember being a town hall in Virginia, being on the stage filming. And um, when they wrapped that scene, we have a meet and greet. And I, this father and his two young daughters make a beeline for me. And their age gap was the same age gap as my sister and myself. So he's holding his younger daughter, who's probably four and a half, in his arms. And he's holding the maybe the like seven and a half, eight-year-old by, by the hand. And they walk up towards me and he says, I just want to thank you. We love this show. And we're a fan of yours, especially because you're so curious. What is it? And I got to tell you, me and this one, especially, and he's referencing this younger daughter in his arm. We, we don't miss an episode and we just have the best conversations about what we think is going on. And I about cried. I got this lump in my throat. My, I started to tear up a little bit. I was transported 30 plus years back in time and literally had an almost, I want to say, just this moment of my dad was there in the room. I could see my dad and me together and this father and daughter and I realized, oh my gosh, this is that next generation. So maybe Bigfoot's not real, but now this father and daughter have this special connection and she's going to go outside and maybe she's going to love the woods and maybe she's going to become a geologist or maybe she'll become a paleontologist or a hydrologist or whatever. But the point is there was excitement, that sparkle in her eye, that look of wonderment and possibility. And he was engaging that conversation. He wasn't telling her what Bigfoot was. He was asking her what she thought. And then if I'm a part of that, boom, every horrible piece of food, cold night, hot day, hours in the car, hours in the airport, missed weddings, funerals, and birthday parties are worth it. Wow, that was a really incredible story and really different than I thought it was going to be. When you told me you were going to interview Renee, I don't know what I was expecting, but I wasn't expecting it to be such a beautiful, personal story. It's gorgeous, right? It's really, it's really cool. And it's really touching because, you know, I said that I used to watch In Search Of with uh, Leonard Nimoy, and I used to watch those shows with my dad. And it's my dad who would ask me those questions about, do you think he could be alive? Do you think he could, you know, we lived in Sacramento, so do you think he lives in the foothills by Lake Tahoe? Do you think, you know, so Whoa. Uh, so I totally related to that. I thought that was, was really, really, um, it's just interesting. I wonder how many kids and fathers watched those shows together. You're you know? kind of blowing my mind right now, yeah. <laughs> April. I had no idea that you had a very similar experience with that. 
Yeah. If I'm remembering it correctly, he introduced us to the show and we would all cur- me, me and my brother and him would curl up on the couch together and watch it. Or if we weren't together to watch it, we would talk about it later. So, That's and Bigfoot cool. was one of the favorite things he liked to talk about. He also loves to talk about ghosts. And uh, we lived in a house that he thought was haunted. So we could talk about that another time. And he also liked to talk about aliens. And so it was just, it was really fun. That's awesome. That stuff. Yeah. The other thing that was <laughs> similar uh, is that I had one of those dolls that she had, the Baby Alive doll. Uh, wow. Yeah. Again. So, wow. <laughs> yeah. So I had one of those dolls and that thing was disgusting because you fed it whatever formula it came with. You would mix it with water or something and feed it. And in mine, it got stuck. It didn't come out. It turned into a huge, moldy, lumpy mass. And we had to cut it open to get that out because it smelled disgusting. So you had to perform operation <laughs> because of Baby Alive was baby constipated. <laughs> yeah, she was very baby constipated. I was excited to have... I, I thought she was going to be a really cool doll. Well, I, My brother was a baby at the time, so it was kind of like, oh, I was going to get to mirror my mom. Yeah. I don't know. Then then I was completely disgusted. I didn't want to have anything to do with that doll. I mean, that's, to be fair, honestly, what happens when you can't poop. <laughs> it gets in there and gets moldy, and then some child has to come and cut your go- guts open. <laughs> <laughs> we just threw that doll away after that. One thing I love about Renee, and I told her that, as you'll hear that in the interviews, it's true. She is really able to be amazed by our world and look for magic everywhere, but also apply scientific method. And she's still amazed by it. Like, yeah, yeah. You can tell it really comes across in that interview. She really seems excited and curious about life and about discovery and about imparting that excitement to other people. I loved the story at the end about all those terrible months of working on the show, it being hard, her being away from home and traveling, that it all was okay because of this father and his daughters who came up to her and basically told her the same experience that, you know, she had with her dad. Yeah, I remember that time. Like, it was hard for her because I met her shortly before she joined the show. And it was rough. She would come home for just a month or two at a time and we'd all get around and, and it was taking its toll. She missed out on a lot of things and she's a great friend. She loves her friends. She wants to be around them. So it was obviously very difficult for her. And, um, that was later when I talked to her about what made it worthwhile. And that was the thing is all these town halls. She loves going there and she feels it's really important to impart critical thinking and to make sure that people are applying that and to check their sources and to not just jump on any bandwagon because it is confirmation bias if you believe or if you absolutely don't believe. Well, it is amazing how reality TV and lately, you know, all these accusations of (laughs) fake news. Yeah, that, you know, they get one expert to kind of say, you know, to back up a claim Yeah. But it isn't a scientific study. Nope. Uh, It's just... No, I mean, the idea of alternative facts. It's definitely a huge issue with this great tool we have, which is the internet. But 
I think a lot of people are getting confused about the difference between media bias, which yes, does exist, Mm -hmm. and fake news. It's not your established news channels who have confirmation bias. Absolutely. But they are held to a higher standard. They have to use facts. So if you don't like the way they're writing it, you can find three other sources, look to three other different places, and double check and see which facts align each time. Right. They could be sued. A fact is a fact. I mean... A fact is a fact, but... It's just really sad that people don't understand the difference. If you can't find three other sources that back that fact up, maybe throw that fact out. Right. I agree. Uh, And, you know, I I do think that reality TV has kind of led to the rise of maybe believing things that aren't quite so real. Yeah, Uh, I do think also, and she's on a reality TV show, like, you hear her, she is not of the belief that Bigfoot is a flesh and blood creature out there because the likelihood of it being a flesh and blood macro fauna is really small. But there's no denying that it is a phenomena. Whatever people are seeing, whether they're seeing actual things or there is a psychological Well, I mean, could it be, you know, the similar thing to mass hysteria, which we talked about a couple episodes ago, you know, like the UFO sightings, Mm -hmm. it seemed like there were a rash of them at a certain time and they sort of spread. Yeah. And um, obviously, though, I mean, I've seen some interesting documentaries about that. I think there was some government experimenting going on. And so I think you know, some yeah. of it is they were seeing some of those experiments and then... And technically, that's unidentified flying <laughs> object for that person. <laughs> it, it, exactly. But the, uh, you know, being abducted and taken yeah, aboard... probed. It, it, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm going to keep saying probed. Probed. Because <laughs> I'm a 12-year-old boy trapped in a woman's body. <laughs> yeah, there's that. I also, though, love that she likes that people are curious about yeah, and it. want to ask questions and are interested I, I agree I, I really admire that in her and it's also pretty amazing that this phenomena spans so many different cultures you have the yeti you have the sasquatch you have the florida version which is the skunk ape um <laughs> yeah and there's an australian one and a malaysian one and like around the world have had this and the Native Americans, which is the Sasquatch, this was way before America became what it is today. And I loved her experience with the Klingits and the Haida tribes up in Alaska. Yeah. But I think it's so interesting, too, just thinking, you know, you're saying, you know, he appears to all of these different cultures. God appeared to all of these different cultures as well. You yeah. Know? So, I mean, well, and I think that a, that's important in the Haida in the. Thing. Mm-hmm. In the Haida and the Klingit, he's a spiritual beast. He's not yeah. a flesh and blood beast. So maybe those stories got handed down and passed yeah. around and then they become real. Or or people just, I think people really want to believe in paranormal Oh, things. yeah. I mean. You know I'm still hoping to be a wizard someday. <laughs> you want to cast some spells. I just want to find out that I've got wizard in me. I just, wizard blood and. Like I had a gray uh, silver eyebrow and I thought, it's happening. I'm becoming (laughs) a wizard. Um, That was my childhood fantasy. It wasn't Bigfoot, but reading fantasy novels and Mm -hmm. nerding out that way. I also think it's pretty amazing. Like we also have creatures like the chupacabra and the werewolf and the vampires. They're similar. They're similar and they grow out of, if you look in the old times, you needed to keep your, your people close to home after dark. So a lot of those things were started just 
to keep people safe at night because there are creatures that could get you and the tribal mentality. Um, and then werewolves with the people that have the gene that makes them hairy all over. Like mm-hmm. that's easy to see where people come with werewolves and vampires with Dracula. Yeah. <laughs> it's all crazy. Well, maybe we'll talk about more of those supernatural things on upcoming episodes. I do love supernatural stories. I like ghost stories. I love ghost stories. And I I love Renee. I think she's awesome. And I'm yeah, so that happy was, she joined us. Yeah, that was such a great story. Thank you, Renee. Thank you, Renee. You're amazing. And I also love what you're doing on the road. Keep it up. I know it's challenging, but you're doing good work. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us on this episode. We'll see you next time. This is April. And this is Rachel. Bye-bye. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. Indians call him Sasquatch. They believe he is as gentle as he is powerful and mysterious. 